Well, a very good morning to you all, and I um, hope you're doing well. It's very good to have another Queensland family with us joining us this morning, and um, it's been great to have Nick up on stage with us. I don't have a very good memory, but um, we were in class together back in our college um, in Queensland, and we did some uh, subjects together. Um, so whenever someone who can do something walks in a church door, the first thing you do is you use them. Hence why we got him up on stage. Um, <laughs> over the past few weeks, uh, we've been looking at the characteristics of the church in Acts chapter 2. Those thousands of Christians who on the day of Pentecost um, heard the message of Jesus Christ and they were repented and they were baptised. Acts 2.42 tells us that they shared four characteristics, four strong strengths. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and to prayer. Well, we've looked at what it means to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And I said, a genuine church is teachable. We need to be open and receptive to what God wants to teach us. Last week, I threw a few people off because I said, we looked at devoted themselves to fellowship. And I said, a genuine church is fighting. What do I mean? Fighting to protect the fellowship they have with God and fighting to keep the fellowship that we have with one another. Just on that. I put a challenge last week over coffee to go out and ask someone what's God done in your life because that's what fellowship is. It's give and taking. I don't know how you... Is this too scary? Did anyone do that? What was it like? Okay, does anyone who can share something? What did you learn about someone else? Don't mention their name. What did God, what's something God done in their life? Or is that too scary? Okay. I'm not, I'm sorry, you'll get used to, okay, okay. Gift of life, yep. It's awesome when you hear what God's doing in people's lives because that's what we need to, to listen to. And I agree with you, Annie, because so much we as the church think it's got to be something big, you know, where I think the fact that we all woke up this morning and we're breathing is big. God is working in our lives. The fact that he got us here safely and we can come together is big because God is working in our lives. You only have to look back over the last two years to realise with open doors and people sitting in pews, God is big. God is working in our lives. That's the stuff we should be sharing with one another and that's what we're fighting for because that's fellowship. Then the next one is they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. From this, my title of my sermon today, a genuine church is celebrating. It is celebrating their forgiveness. Now, you may think, how on earth is he going to do a full sermon in 30 minutes on this breaking in bread? Well, it is a struggle, but I'm doing a bit of a different sermon today. Today, I'm really just answering five questions. Today, as we go through these words, I'm just simply answering five questions about what is devoted themselves to breaking in bread. How about we pray? Father God in heaven, I thank you for what we can learn um, in your word. I thank you for what your word not only teaches us, but challenges us and convicts us of. And Father, I just really want to thank you for everyone that is here and that everyone is online and for everyone that is watching um, down the week. Father, I pray that you will be a blessing to them. I pray that they will help them see what you are doing in their lives, help them to share that and help them to receive what other people have. Father, I pray that as I open up your passage this morning, that, um, yeah, that your name alone will be glorified. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.
Question number one. What is breaking bread referring to? The phrase is literally the breaking of bread. But you will notice if you were to keep reading this section, you would get down to Acts 2.46 and Luke uses the exact same phrase again. Both times uses, uses the same Greek phrase. However, the second time he uses it, he's talking about in homes around a meal. The understanding of the phrase depends on your understanding of the context. And here's our dilemma. Here's the dilemma of most theologians. Because both these phrases are breaking bread, are they talking about the same thing? I mean, when we hear the phrase breaking of bread, what do you instantly think of? Chances are you would instantly think of this, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. But in ancient Judaism homes, whenever they met together, they would formally break bread before every meal. Hence why Luke says they broke bread in their homes. So where do we sit? Is breaking in bread in verse 32 and verse 46 the same thing? Is verse 42, is he stating that they devoted themselves to having meals together in each other's homes as it is in 46? Or is it that they devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper? On the other hand, does verse 46 simply refer to the tradition of breaking in bread before a meal? Or is Luke saying that they conducted communion in their homes? I guess you understand the first question we must answer is this. Is Luke stating that these early convicts were devoted to eating full meals together or devoting themselves to the Lord's Supper? Well, if you were doing a quick study on this, you would find most commentators are all persuaded that the phrase of breaking in bread in verse 42 and 46 are different. They are referring to different things. While some scholars disagree, most believe because of the way the reference here of the breaking of bread in verse 42 is sandwiched between apostles' teaching, fellowship and prayer, they seem to suggest that this is a more specific, even churchy use of the phrase. It is a more direct use of the phrase. While the reference later in the text of breaking to bread in their homes in 46, this clearly is a reference to sitting together in a home sharing a meal. So here's the conclusion. The breaking of bread in verse 42 is talking about the Lord's Supper not happening in homes, not when they're coming together and breaking in bread. The context of verse 46 is the common breaking of bread in the homes. Where do I sit? Well, I go along with the majority. I believe there is a certain formality um, about the word in verse 42. And I think it was in that, that these early convicts were devoted to breaking of bread. If this breaking of bread is simply referring to common meals in home in verse 42, then there's no great distinction between fellowship and prayer and everything like that because they just all mould together. Both could quite easily be associated. So I truly believe verse 42 is the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and verse 46 is the breaking of bread in homes, not referring to the Lord's Supper. You can disagree. Some scholars do. That's fine. But that's my first question answered. Why were they devoted to it? Seriously, I, you can understand being devoted to fellowship, being devoted to prayer um, and everything like that. But why would they be devoted to the breaking of bread? 
Well, remember, these new converts are under the teachings and the guidance of who? The apostles. That's their pastors. That's the one who is teaching them and guiding them. Who are they under the teaching and guidance of? Jesus. They were taught and guided by Jesus himself. And surely they would remember how Jesus said to them only a few weeks beforehand, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And as surely as and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the earth. Now, ten days later, they were doing that very thing with these three new, 3,000 new converts. And the first thing they did is they taught them. Then they received it and they baptised them. So, And just on that, I have had a couple of people ask me, are you interested in baptism? If you've never been baptised and would like to be baptised, then please let someone in the eldership know or myself know because we are planning to have a baptismal service in the near future because it's something that they did. And so now they baptise them and they taught them that you need to obey what Jesus said to them. Surely the fact that the Lord Jesus just taking bread and breaking it with them just a few weeks before saying, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, then taking the cup and saying, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Surely that experience that they had only a couple of weeks beforehand, surely that teaching they received would have been the second most important thing to teach these converts after baptism. I could be wrong, but I just think it would be so prominent. So at Pentecost, they would have immediately introduced these new converts to these two decrees, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They were baptised by the apostles and now the same apostles led them in the Lord's Supper. These new converts were straight away drawn into new patterns of life in the structure of the Jerusalem Christian congregation. The first one was repentance. The second one was baptism. And the next one was the Lord's Supper. They would have learnt all these things. I can't help but think as we read this, it just washes over us. Yep, they were printed, they believed, and they were baptised, and they all took part in the Lord's Supper. Just stop for a moment and think of the logistics of that. Remember, there are about 3,000 to 4,000 members of this new church. If they were gathering meetings in 12, then there needed to be enough wine and bread for at least 300 people in 12 groups. Easy? Not quite. So many wineskins had to be filled, needed to be purchased, and just as much bread had to be baked. Then add to this, the supper was a holy spiritual degree. It was grounded in truth. So the leaders were in charge of the Lord's Supper and they taught it and it had to be done properly and respectfully. Church history teaches us that they even fenced the tables when they did this because the leaders would have to warn those who hadn't accepted the teaching of the apostles, who hadn't accepted Christ as their saviour, weren't welcome to come and do this. But even with all these logistics, even as hard as all this preparation may have been, the breaking of bread held a religious significance and meaning in that day for these 3,000 people. These new Christians made a conscious effort to show that they belonged to this new carefully family, 
the Corinthian church. Christ was showing them how he was going to build his church in them. He was showing them that them belonging to his church was not a mere option. These new converts instantly began to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They held to the spiritual importance of the breaking of bread as they endeavoured to trust Jesus Christ and follow him. That's why they were devoted to it, because they were taught this is what we were told as apostles. My third question, how often did they do it? How often did they break bread? You know, this is quite a hard answer, question to answer because we're not told how frequently the Jerusalem Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper. And there is only a small number of references to this actual Lord's Supper feast in the New Testament. One gospel doesn't even mention it at all. And even Luke doesn't mention it much more after what he says here in Acts chapter 2. It is true, though, church history does teach us that the Corinthian church grabbed hold of it and they celebrated a feast, the Agape feast or love feast. This feast was a sign of love and provision for everyone. This love feast was a meal for those who could afford to bring food and they would come and they would share it. Then the food would be shared with one another and all of them would eat together. Like most churches around, even today, there were both rich people and poor people. Many church history writers tell us that this weekly love fest meal would sometimes be the only meal the poor and needy had for the week. As part of this weekly meal, they introduced the Lord's Supper and it was celebrated as part of the love feast. It was this love feast meal that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat because you are not caring or waiting for the poor. While there was enough food for everyone, some are being greedy even to the point of Paul calls them gluttonous, and he says the poor remain hungry and thirsty while others get drunk. So while this church did it weekly, the scriptures don't tell us how often the new converts in Acts say they did it. No one knows for sure. However, go and do some research. Go and do some study on it. And you'll discover most scholars believe that because of the sheer logistics of what we just shared about before of organising such event, it would have been too daunting, costly and time-consuming for the early church to do it every day or even every week, like the Corinthian church turned it into. Most believe that it would be done monthly or maybe at the time of the great feast in Jerusalem, just because it would take that much involvement. But again they will tell you it's just an assumption because we don't know how often they broke bread, but we do know whenever they did it, however many times they did it, they were devoted to it. It is something that they chose to do. Now for my so what. Why answer these questions? Big deal. What about us? What can we take away? Well, that's my fourth question. Why would we follow it now? Why should we be devoted to it? I mean, we're saved, we're Christians. Why can't we just move on? Why is the simple act of eating a little bread and the fruit from a, a cup vine together something that we should be devoted to? Well, let me give you some reasons. Firstly, the breaking of bread was established by our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord said, do this in remembrance of me. So we do it because it is our privilege to do it. We do it because it's our honour to obey our master. 
If our Lord Jesus instituted it, then it is not useless. It is not something that is a waste of time. Communion is for our eternal good. Christ thought of it and told us to do it. So you know what that tells me? Whenever we do it, we should always see Jesus as the host of our table because we are invited in to be a part of this. All I do in the Lord's Supper, I am doing in his name. We all come responding to his invitation to come and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Breaking bread is a privilege and a duty and a benefit and a gift to us from our Lord. Another reason we break bread is because it was founded or points to the Passover. At the Lord's Supper, we are breaking, being taken back to the book of Exodus. That time in Egypt when, the, when God's people received redemption from their bondage. What was happening way back then was actually a prefigure of what we are doing now. The blood of the Passover lamb was pointing to the lamb of God in that upper room. Our God is a God of redemption. He was back in the book of Exodus and he still is today. Our God is a God who is touched by his people, so much so our God is a God who wants to deliver his people. He redeemed and delivered those Israelites back then because of the blood on their doorpost. And today he redeems and delivers his people with the blood of his son. The Israelites celebrated their freedom and liberation in God by having a meal on the eve of the same time each year, the Passover meal. It was never missed. It was not something they did lightly. They truly celebrated it. While we don't have a full meal anymore, the breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup in some ways reenacts the Passover meal that had taken place of the people's liberation from sin and death. The breaking of bread commemorates the atoning work of Jesus Christ on that cross. His body had to be broken in a terrible death. His blood had to be shed in order for us to achieve salvation. Like the meaning of the Passover meal, we do this in a way to celebrate our freedom. We do this in a way to celebrate our liberation. We do this in a way to celebrate our salvation in God. Next. The breaking of bread is participating as a body. The breaking of bread is not something to be done in private. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together. Paul emphasised that it wasn't a private act. The Lord's Supper was to be, be done together as a family. In fact, they were to wait for one another. All who come to the Lord's table are one body. Whenever Christians participate in the Lord's Supper, they come together as one united company of worshippers of the same Lord Jesus Christ, each united to Jesus as the living head of the table. Therefore, the breaking of bread shows where we are united together as members of the same body. The breaking of bread is not an individual snack. It is a, it is a designated celebration where we eat together as the family of God and we celebrate the forgiveness we've received because of what we're doing. The breaking of bread is one of those special occasions when Christ gathers his people to himself. Jesus invites his saints to gather around the table, to break bread, drink from the cup, but do it together. When we do it together as a whole body, we do it with a renewed determination to love one another as the body of Jesus Christ. 
we do it with a renewed determination to serve one another as the body of Jesus Christ. We do it with a renewed determination to help one another as the body of Jesus Christ. We do it with a renewed determination to pray for one another as the body of Jesus Christ. And so just as much as when you sit there and you take it, it's personal, always remember it's corporate. It is meant to bring you closer to the people sitting next to you, in the pews behind you and the ones by the windows. It is meant to stir in us a family atmosphere where we are devoted to one another. The breaking of bread looks to our blessed futures. What were the large words of Jesus in that room? Do this how long? Until he comes. When we share in communion, we do four looks. Firstly, we look back at Christ's finished work of the cross, of the redemption that we've received. Secondly, we look around at Christ's going, work going on, building his church, saving people gathered at the table, his body. Thirdly, we look ahead to the final act of our salvation, his return. Fourthly, we look forward to the resurrection of the body, the marriage feast of the Lamb, the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to this because then and there the breaking of bread will end. Why? Because he has come. It is no longer needed. He will come as king and saviour. The Lord's Supper is a pledge of this event, a foretaste and an anticipation of what will one day come. So when we take the bread and wine, we do it in hope. It's not a hope against hope of the world, but it is a sure, certain hope that one day that Jesus, who has won victory over sin, the world and the devil will come back again. He is the only hope of the future that we have in the Lord's Supper. At the breaking of bread, we meet that reality. Sinners like us are reconciled to God. Now the inward witness of Christ in our hearts and the joyful things that are yet to come. When you put all these things together we definitely have something worth celebrating. That's why I say a genuine church is celebrating, celebrating the forgiveness they have received. But if you're counting, I said I want to answer five questions today and so far I've only answered four. So what's my last one? Well, it's this. What are the dangers of the Lord's Supper? You know, I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to get quite scared about taking communion especially when the person leading would read the words of Paul in most Corinthians. I mean, his warnings were, we should examine ourselves. It's possible to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Those who partake it in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin. He then goes on to say some people are weak, sick, and even falling asleep because they've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I remember hearing those words and thinking, man, I ain't touching it. When it comes to me, see you later. But should have that been my response? What does it mean to take it in an unworthy manner? Well, unworthy in the Greek is anaxios. What's the meaning of that? The meaning is for that which it is not meant for. So to take communion in an unworthy manner is to make it into something that it's not meant to be. I can't help but think that many churches today do this. I guess you're aware 
that some churches teach that when you take a Holy Communion, Jesus actually spiritually, physically enters the bread and enters the wine. Then when we take it, he physically enters us. As long as we keep receiving Holy Communion, Jesus will continue to help us and give us his forgiveness and grace. Let me ask you, I'm sure you've heard that. Are they right? I mean, think about it. When Jesus took the bread in his hands and he gave it to his disciples, he said, take, eat, this is my body. Should we interpret these words in a strictly literal way? I mean, sounds pretty crystal clear to me. Take, this is my body. They were all looking at Jesus in his literal physical body. They were listening to his voice and seeing him holding the bread in his hands and he says to them, take, eat, this is my body. I mean, if he's not saying this is my literal body, then what's he saying? Well, if you were to explore this teaching that the church calls transubstantiation, you'll find some interesting facts. Firstly, you'll discover that this little word is is not in the original language at all. Literally, Jesus says, this, my body. The word is isn't in our original context. Then do you suppose any of the disciples heard these words and saw Jesus' actions and they would have thought, he's telling them that the bread had miraculously changed and he'd become part of that bread and the, his body was now part of that bread. Of course they wouldn't see, think such a thing. When he said, this is my body, they would have understood him to be saying something like this. This stands for my body. This represents my body. Imagine if I was to come up and show you a photo of my daughters and I said to you, this is Samantha and Zoe. Not one of you would imagine for a moment that I'm saying that a photograph literally becomes my daughters. It's just a figure of speech. And when you read the Gospels, you will know Jesus used figure of speech all the time. I'm a door, I'm a vine, I'm a shepherd. He's using pictures and illustrations to help us understand spiritual truths about who he is and what he's able to do. It is quite um, unwarrantable for us to be told that when he said, this is my body, that he was claiming this in a strict way. Dig even deeper. Look at the context. The context is Jesus telling his disciples that he's going away and that they would see him no more. But in order to remember him, they were to break the bread. He was going, giving them a physical sign to remember him when he was gone. Not that they knew it at the time, but he was talking about his death. So this remembrance of himself was tied up with his death. The bread is a symbolic memorial or a reminder of his death. But think of this. Have you ever been to a memorial where the person was there? You don't need a memorial or a reminder if the person is actually there. If he's actually there in the bread physically, you don't need remembrance of him because he's there. But if he's absent, if he's now seated in heaven at the right-hand side of God, then we can understand that the bread helps us to remember him and all he's done. Go deeper. Transubstantiation teaches us that the wine becomes the blood of Jesus. But here's the interesting thing. When you look at the description of the Last Supper in the Gospels and 1 Corinthians, it's interesting that nowhere is the word wine used. Not once. The word is cup. So what's my point? If Jesus was intending us to understand that the wine actually changed into his blood, surely he would have said, this, is my, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. He didn't say that. He said cup. 
If people insist the word, this is my body, must be understood in the strictest literal way of the bread becoming his body, then they must also insist that the clay cup, the important thing that is mentioned, becomes his blood. But they say that's absurd. They don't believe that, and neither should they. Dig further and look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. Paul, 20 years later, goes on to speak to the Corinthian church about this celebration. Notice he doesn't say, as often as you eat the body of Christ and drink his blood, you show the Lord's favour until he comes. When he writes to them about eating the bread and drinking the cup, Paul understood and says that they are just symbolic. The bread was still bread. The cup was still the cup. Can I say one more thing? As I said, how long did Jesus say to do this? Until he comes. When people claim that he is the body there and there physically in the bread and wine, then it is meaningless to say that we are to do this till he comes. Why? Because he's already there. If he's in the bread, he's there. If he's in the blood, he's there now. You may be thinking, why am I going on about this? I mean, chances are none of us here today would hold that teaching. So why do I have to point this out? Why is it not true? Because the breaking of bread is a serious matter. And while you may not believe it, there are numbers and, dare I say, millions of people who are taught and believe the idea of transubstantiation. Millions of people are taught that as they struggle with sin and fall each week, they need forgiveness and grace. And they're taught all they need to do is go to Mass, kneel at the altar, receive a wafer, then Jesus has entered you and he will give you grace and forgiveness for another week. As I said, we don't teach that. You may not believe it, but I'm sure, like me, you would have people you know who believe it. And I'm sure, like me, you would even have people that have asked you about it. So what I'm trying to do today is give you some background to help you have a good discussion with those people when you're asked about it. Let's just not sweep it under the carpet. You know, I've heard people, Christians, when they've asked about this, They've said, oh, it doesn't matter very much about those who have this idea. Some people believe it, some don't. As long as they're taking it, it doesn't really make any difference. Well, yes, it does. It does. If this view is correct, if their view is correct, then what we believe and what the Bible teaches about the work and redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross is incorrect. Why? Because when these millions of people line up and take communion to be forgiven, what they are saying is Jesus' death and resurrection was not enough and it is not finished and is not overcome. But we are told clearly a number of times in the New Testament that Jesus' work was done perfectly, completed, finished. The grace and forgiveness we need has been all sufficiently met, paid, covered once and for all in his death and resurrection. When millions of people line up and take communion to be forgiven, this, I believe, is they're doing it in an unworthy manner. We can point those people to Christ and what they've done for him. What about us? Well, we don't believe any of that stuff. Is it possible for us to take it in an unworthy manner? I mean, it must be possible for us. Otherwise, why would Paul ask us to examine ourselves? What's that all about? Do you know, I've been told that that's to look at Look at yourself and see if there's any sin in your life. Before you take communion, assess and see if there's any sin in your life. I want to say this. We are to be very clear about our understanding of Paul's words. Nowhere in the Corinthian passage or the Bible for that matter 
Does it say we are to examine ourselves to see if there's sin in our lives that will stop us from partaking in the Lord's Supper? Nowhere. Nowhere do we need, we need to get right with God before we can take it. If you examine yourself and say, I can't really take the Lord's Supper because of the sin in my life, then you've made the Lord's Supper into something it's not. If you are a Christian and you think there are certain sins in your life that are stopping you from taking the Lord's Supper, then I want to say you don't understand the Lord's death, what it's all about. This table represents for us the crucified Lord. Why did he die? To pay the price. He's done the work. It is because of what we celebrate in the Lord's table that allows us to take it. The great Matthew Henry says, awareness of our sin should never draw us away from the communion table. It should bring us to it. The Lord's table shows us we are forgiven. So what are we to examine ourselves for? Well, it is this. Are we keeping this celebration for what it is meant for? I don't need to add any new teachings to this. And I don't want to take any truths away from what is celebrated. It is what it is. It is a remembrance and is a proclamation that Jesus died for us so that we can have a loving, living relationship with his Father God. And as we take it, we know that Jesus promised. He promised. Do it until he comes back. He's coming back. And we take it because we do it together. The early church was devoted to celebrating that, and so should we. And so with that in mind, I would like to invite the stewards up to come and sit, and I will share a few more words, and then we will celebrate the breaking of bread together. So just while they're coming up, the early church called the breaking of bread Thanksgiving, the Eucharist. It was a feast of gratitude for their liberation and freedom. Our Lord didn't offer, his, didn't offer his sufferings to God alone. He didn't offer his blood alone. He didn't offer his obedience alone. He didn't offer his human nature alone. Our Lord offered himself wholly, solely, gave them everything. He was the ransom price paid. He himself was the appeasement of God's anger. He appeased the wrath of God by his death. Now God is reconciled and we are welcomed. He did it willingly, he did it in love, and he did it as Jehovah Jesus. We now have the hope he who died to be our saviour will one day be our risen king, shepherd king. That is what we celebrate. It is our forgiveness and it is our relationship with God and our relationship with his other. But what we do today in taking the Lord's Supper is also make an oath. While the bread and wine don't physically become the body and blood of Jesus, when the Lord said, take and eat, my body is broken for you, Jesus is saying we must take him into our lives. We must remember him. We must remember what he's done. We must remember what he's about. This is my body, take and eat. In other words, we are saying that Christ himself is our necessary food for our spiritual life, for us to live is Christ. The Christian life cannot begin without his work in our souls and it cannot go without him. Christ is our life. It is Christ on the cross, Christ risen and exalted, Christ praying for us, Christ with us as we gather in his name. He is the bread of life. He is our continuing nourishment and strength for every day. Our faith is in Christ alone. 
when we break bread, we're acknowledging we go hungry spiritually without him. We go guilty and condemned without him. And we go defiled and unclean without him. Before you take these elements today, ask yourself, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your saviour? If you have never recognised the death of Jesus Christ, if you've never said yes to God, if you don't know the forgiving work of Jesus in your life, then please just let the elements go past you. No one will judge you. Always remember we're asked to examine ourselves, not examine the person sitting next to you. But for those who've put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, for those who do know his saving grace, then come, join and celebrate. You have been redeemed, and as his redeemed people, we can do what he's given us to do at his supper. Remember him, proclaim his finished work, and go on doing that till he comes back again. He has saved us from everything that could ever separate us from God. Our forgiveness is worth celebrating, and when we do it, we are genuine and we become a genuine church. I find the words of Geoffrey Bingham, um, not that many of you know Geoffrey Bingham, he was a theologian from South Australia. He always used to say, if God gave us the love we deserved, we'd all be dead. But we're not. We are all alive spiritually because what Christ has done. We come together today. Remember what he's paid for you. Remember where you now stand, righteous before God, because of what we celebrate today. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you that you're a God, a masterful God that had a plan all through our creation to draw us back to yourself. You never wanted any of us to be lost. You wanted to save us. And Father, I thank you that none of us can do any of that, but you have done it all. And Father, I thank you. Lord Jesus, I thank you in the upper room when you spoke to your, your friends and your disciples Jesus, when you said to them, take and eat in remembrance of me until you come back. Jesus, I thank you that that now rings true in our lives. I thank you for those 12 men that went on and taught your gospel to these new converts in Acts. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you now live in us. You are now teaching and guiding us. As you are inside us, you stir our hearts and our spirits to know the Son and the Father. And I pray, God, that as we come and we celebrate this table together today as the family of God here at Pakenham Baptist Church, help us to be real, help us to be genuine, and help us to know that none of us deserve to be able to be doing what we're doing. It is only because that your son said yes and became obedient to death on the cross that we can now celebrate our forgiveness in you. And Jesus, it is in your mighty name that draws us together. As head of this table, I say amen and amen.